So we've always heard people say, and perhaps we ourselves, if I could only see a real miracle, then I'd really believe. I'd like to explore why and when do miracles happen. That's the subject. Why and when do miracles happen? So I think in order to have any educated conversation on the topic, we have to have a good, user-friendly, working definition of what is a miracle. So I'll, I'll suggest the definition, and uh, you can raise your hand if you feel it's true, if you feel it's accurate. A miracle is when Hashem intervenes with the course of nature. A miracle is when Hashem steps in or gets involved with what's happening. So raise your hand if you feel that's a true definition of a miracle. Hashem is now intervening. <clears throat> so I love you dearly, Matthew. But that's false. <laughs> but I'll explain why. I think most people in the world would probably assume that that's a pretty accurate definition. It's not, though, and it's actually bordering on apicorsis. It's close to heresy. Right, we don't believe that Hashem gets involved. We don't believe that Hashem intervenes. Ultimately, our perspective on the world is, everything is a Kodesh Baruch Hu. There's nothing outside of Hashem. There's nothing that Hashem would have to enter into the situation it's all HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everything we experience, every conversation we have, every, every moment in time, every feeling, every sense of disappointment, any, any hope, any, any, anything we go through, it's all Hashem. Now what that means is very hard to grasp. But to say that Hashem intervenes is not accurate. So what then is, a, is the definition of a nace, of a miracle? So the Chazon Ish writes in one of his letters, this is source number one, Ki korin teva, what we call nature, ha-mechuven the real meaning behind teva is, v'ratzon ha-yoser masmid, shel ha-mahava kol All nature means is, Hashem is choosing to do this more often. So qualitatively, there is absolutely no distinction between what's natural and what's supernatural, what's known as the course of nature and what's viewed as a miracle. The only difference, as the Chazanish, is how frequent does it occur? That's the distinction between nature and a miracle. Are we accustomed to it or not? I've told the story before that when, my, when Bracha, who's now eight years old, when she was about two years old, I would walk her back from the babysitter, and we'd walk about a block and a half to go from where she was at the babysitter to our apartment. And I did this during my lunch break. And every day, it would be the same conversation. She would see pigeons, and she would always get really excited. Bud! 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 Yes, yes, that's a pigeon. That's a dirty, gross New York pigeon. Yes, that's a pigeon. I've seen those before also. Now, when we moved to Florida, and we're driving around, and I start seeing these really exotic, 
creatures with, with big wings and, and necks that are this big. I'm screaming, bird, bird, unbelievable, look at these things. It, it took me a while to process that this is actually a place that was meant for human habitation. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel that way. Then we went back to New York a few years later, and I saw dirty pigeons again, and I was impressed. Wow, look at these strange birds. So it all depends on what you're accustomed to. That's the only difference between nature and a miracle. <clears throat> I want to read to you an article, and this was a, a story that was somewhat well-known back in the summer of 2014. This was a, an interview with a person who was an Iron Dome commander. And uh, he, was, he was explaining to the journalist that a missile was fired from Gaza. Iron Dome precisely calculated its trajectory. We know where these missiles are going to land down to the radius of 200 meters. This particular missile was going to hit either the Israeli towers the Kirya, which is Israel's equivalent of the Pentagon, or a central Tel Aviv railway station. Hundreds could have died. We fired the first interceptor. It missed. We fired the second. It missed. This is very rare. I was in shock. At this point, we just had four seconds until the missile lands. We had already notified emergency services to converge on the target location and had, warned of, and had warned of mass casualty incident. Suddenly, Iron Dome, which calculates wind speeds, among other things, shows a major wind coming from the east, a strong wind. And right when you hear that, you just think the biblical proportions of Yolech Hashem Esayom Beruach Kodem Azah that Hashem sends the strong eastern wind, that was the beginning of the splitting of the Yamsuf, and it sends the missile into the sea. We were all stunned. I stood up and I shouted, I'm sure he did so in Hebrew, Yesh Elohim! Yesh Elohim! There is a God! I witnessed this miracle with my own eyes. It was not told or reported to me. I saw the hand of God send that missile into the sea. It's an amazing story, and it's very powerful, and it's very inspirational. But that line, Yesha Elohim, is not 100% right. We don't say Yesha Elohim. We say Hakol Elohim. Everything is Hashem. It's not just there is a God, but everything is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Only difference between nature and a miracle is how often it happens. I'd like to present to you four problems. Although it's not Pesach, we can still have four questions. And uh, hopefully through exploring why and when miracles happen, we'll arrive at some level of understanding. Problem number one is just understanding why and when do miracles happen. Problem number two is there seems to be an interesting connection between Mesiris Nefesh and Nais. Mesiris Nefesh is usually translated as the giving of one soul. And the, the, the classic case of Mesiris Nefesh is where once, really we have three different exceptions, where it's appropriate to give up one's life rather than transgress the Torah. That's the requirement of Mesiris Nefesh, giving over one soul. 
So I want to share with you two sources that, that seem to show us the connection between Mesiris Nefesh and a miracle. And we'll have to explore what that connection is. The first is a story we find in the Gemara in Brachos. It's a source number, well, the source number three is the Bach. Bach was one of the famous commentaries on the tour, which was a classic halachic source. And he speaks about the celebration of Hanukkah. So going back about 2,200 years ago, we know the, uh, the Greek society had a major influence on the, on the Jewish people to the point where we were enthralled by the culture, we were taken by the, the art and the music and the theater and the sculpture, the architecture, uh, to the point where we actually have sources that tell us that Jews wanted to participate in the athletics. And we know the Olympics, originally, they were performed in the nude. The problem was, the person was Jewish, it would be clear that he was Jewish. And people wanted to hide that so badly, they actually went through painful surgeries so the world wouldn't tell they were Jewish. Just an illustration to how much that desire was there to just blend in and be part of the Greek culture. So there is a major hisrashlus, there is a weakening of our commitment to Torah. And says the Bach, Hanukkah Iker HaGezeira Haisa Al Hisrashlu Ba'avoda The, the Gezeira, the decree of Hanukkah came because we were weak in our avoda. We were assimilating into the culture around us. And when we returned through tshuva, when we chose to fight, to literally give our lives for the service of Hashem, at that point, Hashem saved the Jewish people. So the Bach seems to be saying that the Gezeira was based on our Hisrashlus. We were weak in our commitment to Torah. And then when we chose to fight the Greeks, it wasn't just the strategic thing, we have to fight them because they've taken over our temple, but it was actually a form of tshuva. Through being Moser Nefesh, through risking our lives for the Torah, that caused Hashem to perform the miracles that took place during the times of Hanukkah. So that's one source we see a connection between Mesiris Nefesh, risking or giving our lives, and somehow that producing miraculous results. The second place we find this is in a Gemara in Brachos. The Gemara records a conversation. What was going on with the earlier generations that they were able to, to have miracles happen for them? But with us... We don't have miracles happening all the time. What's the difference? And he goes on to say, this is Repubba speaking to Abaye, if you'll tell me, because they learned a lot of Torah, we're learning more Torah nowadays than they were learning before. So why do they get miracles and we don't? Amr Lai Abaye says back to Repubba, Kamoi havu kamasri nafshayu akadushas Hashem. There's one massive distinction. The earlier generations were Moser Nefesh. They gave their lives for the service of Hashem. 
Anan lo masrina nafshin akadushas Hashem, but we don't do that. We don't have Mesiris Nefesh. We don't have that same level of devotion or commitment, the giving of the soul. And that's why we're not Zoha. We don't merit to see miracles. So from both the Bach and, and the Gemara and Brachos, it seems clear there is a connection between Mesiris Nefesh and experiencing miracles. What exactly is that connection? That's question number two. Question number three is based on a Gemara in Shabbos. The Gemara tells us that besides heeding your mother's advice not to do things that are dangerous, the Gemara tells us, generally, you should not put yourself in a dangerous situation. Thinking to yourself, there's no problem. I know that it's kind of crazy to do this, but uh, I'm a confident guy. And if worse comes to worse, Hashem will perform a miracle. I'll be saved miraculously. I have faith. Don't say that. Two reasons. First of all, that miracle might not happen and you'll die. That wouldn't be a good thing. But second of all, even if somehow a miracle does happen and your life is saved, Still, it takes away from your merit. So putting yourself in a situation where I'm relying on a miracle, even if that miracle comes through, it takes away from my overall reward. So it's not a smart thing to do. Yet we have a story with Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa was one of the disciples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He lived right after the destruction of the second base of Mikdash. And the story goes as follows. He was having a conversation about a particular, a particular lady who was into Kishuf. She practiced black magic. And she went and she gathered some of the dirt under the legs of Rabbi Hanina. So why would she do that? Because she wanted to plot against him to kill him. So Amrullah Shakule, he says to her, you know what? Do whatever you want. I'm not scared of you and your, your black magic. Why not? Because Ainod Milvado, the Torah tells us that there is nothing else besides Hashem. I don't have to worry about any of your spells. So the Gemara has a question, Va'amr of Yochanan. But, Yo- but, but Rabbi Yochanan did say that there is something to Kishif, if you know what you're doing, although generally anyone who claims to practice black magic, they're probably just somewhat delusional, but there could be people who have certain abilities to, to manipulate the system and, and do strange things. So there is a truth to black magic. Why aren't you, Rabbi Hanina, scared of her? So the Gemara says... I'm not concerned, that was the response of Rabbi Hanina, and that I, I, even though I might rely on a miracle, but I have so much merit, I have so much in the bank account, I don't mind if some of it goes away. That's what it sounds like he's saying. I have so many schusim, the nafisha's schusay, it's not a big deal. So question number three is, what exactly is the answer of Hanina ben Dosa? Why would you rely potentially on a miracle if it's going to detract from your account, so to speak. Why would you do that? 
And it almost sounds arrogant of him to say that. Oh, I got plenty in the bank. I'm a real tzaddik. I don't care if I have to rely on a miracle. Very, very strange for someone of his stature to speak like that. That's problem number three. And the fourth and final problem is what we find in this week's Parsha. We are, we're told actually at the end of last week's Parsha that when the Sarha Mashkim, the person who was in charge of the wine, is set free and he goes back to his position, Yosef turns to him and he says, Please remember me and mention me to Paro. Tell Pharaoh that there's a young man here in prison who's very talented and he was hoping that maybe that would be an avenue to get him out of jail. Sounds like a very reasonable thing to do. Yet we're told that Yosef was taken to task for that. It was a lack of faith. Why were you trying to ask this guy to help you? That was demonstrating a lack of bitachon. You should have had faith in Hashem. So question number four is, what exactly did he do wrong? It sounds like a very normal hishtadlus. It's a very normal way of putting forth the effort. So these are our four questions we're going to hopefully delve into. When and why the miracles happen? What is this mysterious connection between mysterious nefesh, between giving our, our souls and somehow creating miraculous results? Question number three is the response of Rebbe Bendosa. How could he say, I'm not afraid of the witch because I have so much merit? And question number four is, what did Yosef do wrong by asking the, the butler to remember him? It sounds like a very logical thing to do. So what I'd like to do is go through some of the life of Rebbe Chanina Bendosa. He was a very interesting personality, and we have many stories about him throughout Shas. Uh, many of them are, are somewhat well-known. I'd like to go through three or four of them, and then try to find the common thread. Try to get to that kernel of what exactly was so special about Rebbe Chanina Bendosa. And I think understanding his unique qualities that will hopefully give us a broader picture to answer these four questions. First is source number eight. This is a story in the Gemara and Brachos. That the son of Rebbe Gamliel was very ill. And Rebbe Chanina Bendosa went and he went to Davin for his son. He comes out of the room and he tells Rebbe Gamliel, no problem, his fever is going down, he'll be fine. So they were somewhat astonished. They turned to Bechanina Bendosa and they asked him, Vichinaviyata? Are you a prophet? How can you say he'll be fine? How do you know? His response, famous words, Amr Lahan, Lo Naviyanochi, Velo Ben Naviyanochi. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. However, Kach Mikublani, I have a tradition. I have a Mesorah. That when I daven for somebody, if I feel the words are coming out smoothly, and I'm articulate, and I can say it like a mensch, then tfilosi, my, my prayer is accepted. If for some reason there's a blockage, I'm having a hard time in my prayer, so then that's not a good sign. When I was in that room, my prayers were coming out very smoothly, and therefore my misora, my tradition tells me, your son will be okay. That's story number one. Story number two, which is very similar, this is now the son of his teacher, of his rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. His son was very ill. 
So the teacher calls to, calls to his student. He says, Rechanina ben Dosa, please, Bani, my son, Davin for my real son. Make him live, do something. So right there and then, Rechanina ben Dosa places his head between his knees, which is actually the crash position. Right? Because if you're in that position, you'll be a lot safer than otherwise. Somebody once told me, parenthetically, they said, you know, I do recommend sitting towards the back of the plane, because if it does go down, at least you'll be towards the back. So I thought about it for a moment. How many cases do we hear in the news? The plane went down, a terrible disaster. Everyone in the first 14 aisles, were, they, they all died, but the back 10 were okay. <laughs> so this is the source of the crash position. Rechanina ben Dosa, he puts his head between his knees and he starts pouring out his heart to Hashem. As he's davening, Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's son, begins to feel better. And he's so grateful. He says, thank you. And the wife of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is witnessing this whole thing. And then she overhears her husband tell his student, he says, Hanina, I have to tell you something. If I were doing the same thing you were, I were trying to daven, it would take me all day to accomplish what you just did in a few moments. So she says to her husband, Honey, Amr lo ishto, v'chi chanina gadol mimcha? Is chanina greater than you? You're the Rebbe, he's the Talmud, you're his teacher. So Amr lo, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says back to his wife, Love, he's not greater than I am. He is analogous to the servant before the king. And I'm like one of the noblemen in front of the king. Very cryptic answer. But what the, the commentators explain, Yochanan bin Zakeh was telling his wife, when it comes to learning and teaching and the breadth and, and the depth of, of, of Talmud, obviously I'm on a higher level. That's why I'm the teacher and he's a student. When it comes to tefillah, when it comes to prayer, the difference between an evid and a sar, between a servant and one of the noblemen, is how often are they with the king? So the evid is there all the time, whatever you want, here I am at your service. I'm with the melech 24-7. The Tsar comes in now and again, he has some information to share with the king, he has a request, but he's not living with the king. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa was living with the king. Meaning to say, not just that he was davening a lot, but b'machshava in his mind, he was with Hashem 24-7, to the point where he might not give a better sheer a more elaborate class than I can, but when it comes to davening, he's in a different league. That's why I turned to him. We have another interesting story about Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa from the Gemara and Tainus. The Gemara says that they were extremely poor. They had nothing. Yet his wife was somewhat embarrassed, and she looked around Friday afternoon. All the other women, what are they doing? They're baking and they're cooking for Shabbos. And you can look at their home from outside, you see that the smoke is coming up from the furnace, from the oven, clearly something's going on. So what she would do to avoid embarrassment 
is she would light up the furnace every Friday afternoon, so at least fire would be going and smoke would be coming out, and people would assume, okay, they're also cooking for Shabbos. However, there was one nosy neighbor, one nosy neighbor, Mrs. Goldsmith, and she had a hunch that it just that it doesn't make sense. They're so poor. I know they're poor. You know they're poor. They're never bringing food in. They never have a big Publix or Costco shopping. I, 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 bet, I bet something's going on over here. She knocks on the door to the Dosa residence. And uh, his wife is there and she realizes what's going on. She runs into a side room because she's so scared that she's going to come in and find out that she has nothing. So indeed, this neighbor comes in, and as soon as, as, soon as she gets into the house, she, str- she goes straight into the kitchen, and she sees there in the oven loaves of bread that are baking, and you see in the, 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 the bowls for kneading all this dough overflowing. Mrs. Dosa comes on out, and she sees everything that's happening, and she has a shovel in her hand, a shovel for taking off the bread from the oven. Um, the neighbor is surprised. Why did she get the shovel, the Gemara says? Because although she ran into the side room initially because she was embarrassed, she knew because she was so accustomed to miracles, she knew something would happen. You know what? Let me get the spatula. You never know what's going to happen around here with, with, my, with my husband, Hanina. You never know. She comes out and lo and behold, she has challah for, for Shabbos for the next five weeks. So clearly this Hanina is something very special. The last story, and this is probably the most famous, the daughter of Hanina ben Dosa, she lights the candles Friday afternoon, and then she realizes, Oy vey! Instead of putting oil inside there, I put vinegar. So her loving father goes over to her and says, Biti, my daughter, Ma'ech b'slach, why do you care? The same person, Misha Omer Shemin V'yadluk, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu has said that Shemin should have the, the chemical structure to be able to light on fire, he could also tell vinegar to light on fire as well. And indeed, the vinegar remained aflame the entire Shabbos all the way until Havdalah. So, if there's any miracle worker that we find throughout the Gemara, it's clearly Rebbe Hanina ben Dosa. To the extent that the Mishnah and Sota, where it goes through names of great people and their legacy, it says, Mishameis Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, when he passed away, that was the end of Anshe Maisa. You don't find in the world those types of miracle workers anymore. So all these stories, all these miraculous, supernatural things are happening with Rabbi Hanina himself, with his power of prayer, with miracles all around him, with his wife and with his daughter. What was it? What was so special? The answer we find in the Nefesh HaChaim. The Nefesh HaChaim was composed by Rechaim Velazhin, one of the great disciples of the Vilna Gon. And here he has one of the most powerful ideas that we could ever incorporate into our lives. And this is something that I'm sure many of us have heard before, but it's something that we need to review over and over again, because this can transform a life of mediocrity to a life of bitachon, a life of amuna, a life of living and breathing Hashem. 
Chaim Velazhin is, is speaking about the first Gemara we quoted, where Rabbi Hanina Mendoza wasn't afraid of this person doing black magic, because I, I have so many schusim, I have so much merit, there's no problem. So he explains that Rechanina ben wasn't saying I have nothing to worry about because I have so many points in my account. Losing a few of them is not a big deal. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't arrogant. He was saying that the only time a miracle takes away your schusim could somehow diminish what you're deserving is only if it's a miracle. If you view something as a miracle, then you went through a lot, Hashem went out of His way for you, so to speak, you're giving up some of your points. But if you're living on that level, where there's no such thing as a miracle, because everything is a miracle, I'm living with the mindset of the Chazonish, that the only difference is nothing qualitatively, just how often does it happen, so then the fact that a miracle could happen over and over and over again in my daily life, that doesn't take away from my schusim. It doesn't faze me. I'm not impressed by it anymore. It means nothing to me. Listen to the magical words of Chaim Velazhin. Source number 13. The very last paragraph, and, and this is relevant because we live in a world where everyone's looking for segulas. What's a segula? Segula is a quick fix. I don't want to really have to, to work on myself or change any negative media that I have. I just want to somehow get something good in my life. So if that means I have to wear a cute little necklace or I have to give tzedakah to a particular place and they're going to do something for me 40 times, give me that because I'd rather have the quick fix. I'd rather have the segula than actually take years of my life working and trying to transform myself. Do we believe in segulas? The answer is, it depends. It depends on what the segula is and where the source for it comes from. But says Rechaim Velazhin, you want a segula? You want a quick fix? I'll give it to you. Be'emes hu inyan gadol. I want to share with you something so profound. Visegula nifla. This is the ultimate segula. To remove from oneself all negativity. That nothing outside of me can have an impact on me. Nothing can harm me. What is this skula? What is this, this magic potion? Says Rechaim Velazhin, it's nothing magical. Kisha'adam koveya belibo. When a person instills in his heart, telling himself, Hello, Hashem, Hu Elokim. It's not just Yesh Elokim, but Hashem is in control of everything. Hamiti. He is in total control. Ve'ein od milvado yisborach shum koach ba'olam. And I am aware, not just intellectually, but emotionally, that there is no other force in the world that can touch me. And I don't care what he thinks about me. I don't care about what she just said about me. I don't care about this particular fear of a natural disaster or, or otherwise. V'chol ha'olomos klal, Hashem is in charge of all dimensions of reality. V'hakol mole rakach duso ha'poshet. Everything is Hashem. When we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem alokeinu Hashem achad, we shouldn't just have in mind 
Hashem is one. It's much deeper than that. It's Hashem is the only one. Hashem is everything. When you have this in mind, then that serves as a protection because what that does is it raises you up to a different plane of existence. It takes you out of this olam hashafel of this lowly world and puts you in a whole different currency. When I'm connecting to Hashem in that level and with such a real way, then I'm uplifting myself from anything that might be going on around me. That, says Reb Chaim Velazhin, that's the ultimate segula. So to answer our question, when and why do miracles happen? The answer is very simple. When a person realizes it's not miraculous, when I have that level of vivid clarity that it's all Hashem, then miracles could happen over and over and over again. Rabbi Hanina Mendoza was not praising himself, he was just saying, I'm not scared to rely on a miracle because it's not a miracle for me, it's no problem. This is my life. I want to share with you an amazing story before we answer the last two questions. This is a story that I've shared before. It goes back to, uh, to World War II with the Briskarov. I have here on the last page a picture of the Briskarov or Velvel Salavechik. He was living in Warsaw at the time. And... Um, one morning, his son-in-law, Rabbi Yisrael, Moshe Shapiro, the son-in-law of the base Levi, actually, he walks in, and he has a newspaper under his arm. So the briskarov says, anything going on? What's new? Uh, Shapiro says back, nothing much. I didn't see anything you know, worth uh, commenting on. But he was curious. The briskarov takes the newspaper, he opens it up, and he sees one of the headlines is that the Russians were handing over Vilna to Lithuania. So, being in Warsaw at the time, and now seeing that Vilna is being handed over to Lithuania, he thought that might make the most sense to somehow get out of Warsaw and travel to Vilna. Going back to Brisk was not an option. Staying in Warsaw was not an option. And the only question is, how in the world can we cross the border? There are German soldiers everywhere. The most obvious way is taking a train, but if you take a train, that's pretty much a death sentence because you have Gestapo all over the train, swarming like flies. So he decides to get together with a few other families, and they hire a wagon driver, a Polish wagon driver, to take them to Lithuania. Now, originally, it was supposed to take about three or four days to get there. However, they couldn't take any of the main roads and they couldn't travel during daylight. Germans were there, they would see them. Revelve himself, as you can see from the picture, was clearly Jewish. You can't hide that. You could wear a Yankees cap, but it's not going to help. <coughs> so this three-day journey turned into many weeks and uh, the, the, the miracles that took place along the way are incredible. We could save some of those stories for a different time. They get up to the last kilometer where everyone has to get out of whatever mode of transportation they're on, if it's a horse or a wagon, and you have to walk the last kilometer. So he starts walking together with his family. Right then, two German soldiers come over to him and they start harassing him. Where's your gun? They start pushing him around. 
And then literally about 30, 40 seconds later, a third German soldier comes by, a higher ranking officer, and he yells something in German, and they, they move on. And at first they're shocked, but uh, listen, they're not here harassing us anymore, and they kept on going, and they made it across the border. So that was the journey that saved their lives, not just their lives, but the whole dynasty of, of Brisk. Once they got to Lithuania, the Brisker Rav said to his family, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Because what took place over there didn't make any sense whatsoever. You have German soldiers who are seeing a Jewish family trying to get out of Warsaw. Why did they let us go? Said Ravelvo, the whole time I was in the wagon, he was situated in the back of the wagon, he said, I have a Mesorah, Kach Mikublani, I've received this tradition from my father, Reb Chaim, that in these types of situations, you just keep on reminding yourself, Ein od milvado, Ein od milvado, all of these people can't touch me. It's just me and you, Hashem. There is nothing else in existence, just me and you. He said, once I got off the wagon, and I saw the end in sight, and the light at the end of the tunnel, I was Masiach Das, I, I lost focus, and I just got excited. It was right then where these two Germans came over to me and they started harassing me, but as they were doing so, I wasn't paying attention to them, I went back into my trance of Einon Milvado. And when I went back into that trance of Einon Milvado, that's when the third German soldier came and the other two left. It's interesting, his earlier stay in Warsaw, the Briskerov. This was the, uh, when the Germans began their invasion of Poland, and there was an unending series of air raids. So in the beginning, when there were bombs here and there, the Briskerov went down with his family to the bomb shelters. However, as the bombing intensified, he stopped going to the shelter. And you could imagine they were somewhat puzzled. Tati, what are you doing? When there are a couple bombs here and there, then you're coming down to the shelters with us. Now that the Germans are going all out and there are explosions all over the city, you're sitting in your dining room learning Gemara? So he explained as follows. He said, the reason why we go into a bomb shelter is because we have, uh, we have an obligation to do hishtadlis. You have to do what makes sense. So if there are a couple bombs here and there, likely we're, we're safer in a bomb shelter so I feel this is what I have to do. Once I see there's this intense air raid where bombs are flying everywhere and you're not really that much safer in this particular place, you just feel safer, so then I feel I have no need to be there. I'll stay here in my living room where there's better light and I can learn Gemara. Now I'm not suggesting this kind of behavior for us, but just to give you an insight into where some of these people, not going back to Rebbe Bendosa, but going back 70 years ago, where a human being could, could bring himself in his levels of bitachon and faith. In an earlier generation, I have a picture here as well, of the altar of Navardic. And he was known for his, his strong personality, Rav Yosef Yosel Huritz. The, uh, this was during World War I, where, again, a similar story to the Briskerov. He said, I would go down to the shelter with you, if I felt that was any safer, there wasn't a shelter, I think it was just during the, some kind of battle or something in his city, he was outside pacing back and forth, thinking of a particular Talmudic discussion. 
And again, they were telling him, why are you walking around? And he said, because if a bomb goes off, I'm no safer inside of that wooden structure than I am out here. So at least I'll get some fresh air in the meantime. Let's get back to our four questions for a moment. We answered two of them. Why and when do miracles happen? It's based on our mindset. We answered the, uh, the, the response of Rebbe ben Dosa. What did Yosef do wrong? What did Yosef do wrong by asking the, this guy, just mention me, mention my name, tell Pharaoh that I'm here. What he did wrong was that on his level of bitachon, because he was living with Einod Milvado, there are certain things that don't make that much sense. Do you really think he's going to put in a good word for you? You know who this guy is. You know his personality. He doesn't care about you. If you weren't living with Einod Milvado, then it might make sense to ask him to please do you a favor. But Yosef, on your level of bitachon, not appropriate. What's the connection? And this is our last question we have to address that ties back into Hanukkah. What is the connection between Mesiris Nefesh, between giving up one's life and somehow accomplishing miracles? What's the definition of Mesiris Nefesh? It's not giving up one's life. It's not giving up myself, but it's giving my whole self. It's a subtle difference, but it makes a massive difference. Mesiris Nefesh is not giving up myself, it's giving my entire self. Einod Milvado, having that mantra in our heads means I am totally aware that there's nothing else, nothing within me, not within people, not within any natural disasters. I'm giving myself to Hashem. I'm not surrendering. That's more of a secular term. Surrender. We don't surrender. We embrace Hashem and we embrace the fact that He's in total control of everything around us. Mesiris Nefesh, when I give myself totally to Hashem, then miracles happen naturally. Then those miracles are no longer miraculous, they're natural, because I'm in a different plane of existence. I have a good friend of mine for a few years now, he was in Vietnam for two years straight. And uh, at the time he was not Jewish, but he told me that on his backpack he had sewed in the following line. You and me, Lord. That's what he had in mind. He would look at it every night. You and me, Lord. This is before he, he converted. That's the goal. The goal is you and me, Lord. There's nothing else. Now, do we see this in our, in our regular lives? Not all the time. But we have to be receptive. We have to be open to seeing the Yad Hashem, to seeing Hashem's not intervention, but seeing Hashem's presence in everything that goes on around us. I'll share with you one last story, we'll end with this, a little humor, but it's a true story. I heard um, Rabbi Eisenberg, his brother-in-law was here a few years back, Mrs. Eisenberg's brother, and at the time he was in the IDF. So he was sharing with us during the third meal his schedule. That he would wake up every day at five in the morning, and he would go through a whole bunch of different things and basically risk his life for 12 hours straight trying to defend Israel and, and his brothers and sisters. So after hearing that speech, I was really enthused. I was excited. I wanted to join the IDF. I didn't do that. But I thought to myself, if he's waking up at 5 in the morning, I can probably wake up 10 minutes earlier than I am anyway. I could push a little bit harder. 
So I set my alarm for 10 minutes earlier than I usually wake up. The alarm goes off, and uh, not surprisingly, I'm exhausted. And I'm already telling myself, it's not the right thing to do. <laughs> You're going to be irritable. You're not going to daven well. You got a little bit more sleep. It's okay. So I turn off the alarm clock, ready to go back to sleep for another 10, maybe 15 minutes. But I can't go back to sleep because I hear this really strange noise coming from the living room. So I kind of ignore it for the first few minutes, but I can't ignore it anymore. It sounds really strange. I get up and I start walking towards it, kind of groggy and half awake. And as I get closer, I'm hearing this little voice. It's learning time. It's learning time. It's learning time. Louder and louder, saying the exact same thing over and over again. You'd think I was probably hallucinating, right? It's learning time. It's learning time. I'm like, what's going on? So I, I get closer and I go through some different toys and I realize it was a talking pig. <laughs> no joke. We have this little, we had the little pink plastic pig where you would put in these fake coins and, and it said three or four different things. Either it's learning time or thank you or something else. But something happened that it was going over and over again saying it's learning time. At that point, I took the thing and I threw it on the floor. <laughs> And I got up and I learned. <laughs> now, the reason that inspiration is so fleeting, that happened one day. The next day I didn't get up early. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at least for one day I was inspired. But there are little things that happen in life, whether it's a talking pig or something else going on. We have to be receptive. It's not about looking for those times that Hashem intervenes, not looking for Hashem to step in, but it's trying to open our eyes to Einod Milvado. Everything is a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And the more we, we internalize this, the more we should live in a higher plane of existence and see with our own eyes miracles to come for all of Klal Yisrael. Sure.